at home, right? So um, one of the blessings of planting our church when we did is that um, Stephen and his family showed up about the time that we got started, and um, it's fun to watch uh, people grow up in the faith, and it's fun to watch parents try to teach faith to their next generation, to these children that God's given them. And I was thinking about Stephen last night, and uh, Kelly and I were talking, and I was going to go to Psalm chapter 127, uh, because in there it talks about the blessing that children are. And, of course, this children is way taller than me, um, which tells you right away he is not mine. Um, but in Psalm chapter 127, verse 3, it says this, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. And happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. And I've always seen children as like this, you know, this psalm just described them as an arrow. Uh, and what you do with an arrow is you pull it out of your quiver, you, you knock it on the, the string of the bow, and then you draw back. And I believe that parenthood is actually 18 years plus or minus, depending on your household, 18 years of drawing back an arrow and then spending time aiming it where it's supposed to go. And ultimately, as parents, our goal is that our children wouldn't just be successful, hopefully, not just that they would be handsome or beautiful, uh, but that they would have lives that bring glory to our Father in heaven. And so I've seen that continually grow in Stephen. And even this year, uh, through everything that's gone on, things being taken away from his life, and at the same time, God giving different things in place of them, I've seen him grow in maturity. And so um, at the same time, one of the hardest parts about being parents is that we are given this responsibility to draw back and knock and aim the arrow. And yet, if you don't let go of the arrow, it doesn't go anywhere. It just stays on the bow, and it has no impact on the world that it's set forth into. And so um, I just want to pray over Stephen this morning and over his parents as they get ready to let go. Um, that's a hard part, and many parents don't ever let go. Um, and, and there's obviously, it's not always just letting go, but it's letting go and sending them and allowing them to be in the hands of God. And so this morning as I pray over him, that's what we're doing. We're committing him to the one who brought him into the world in the first place. And so, Lord Jesus, I thank you for this young man. I thank you for his friendship. I thank you for the ways that I've seen him mature because of his relationship with you. I thank you for the ways that you're continually showing me more about yourself through him and his parents. Thank you for the sweet prayers of his mom and dad as they've been preparing for this next season of life as he goes off to college. Um, next week, they're going to be moving and doing that, that rite of passage, just leaving them in a town with people they don't know, hopefully uh, desiring for him the best of what you have to offer. And so, Father, um, we commit him to you as a church body. Lord, we want to see him not only grow and prosper uh, physically and practically, but we want to see him thrive as a Christian witness in this next generation. And so, Holy Spirit, please fill him for this purpose. 
give him wisdom and vision to see what you're calling him to be, not just what not to be, but what you're calling him to be in this generation. Father, give him boldness as Stephen, whom he's named after in Acts chapter 6, a man full of your spirit and of wisdom. And Lord, give him the ability to see things for what they truly are and walk among these evil days as a faithful follower of Jesus. Father, I thank you for his parents. I pray that you'd bless them as they send him out. Help them to have wisdom on how to encourage him from afar. And as a church, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be his biggest cheerleader in the spirit, to pray for him always, to reach out to him and encourage him and see how he's doing. And Lord, we look forward to the man that you're going to make him into be. So Father, we thank you for the gift that he is. We pray you'd bless his sister as well, as she will no doubt miss him. And Father, um, just bless this family as they send their son off to be educated and trained. Lord, plug him into a church. Give him godly believers to be around in his own age and older. Lord, make him the disciple that he was made to be. And we'll give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, ma'am. All right. Tearjerker. I'll cry later when no one's looking. Men don't cry when people are looking. I'm just kidding. All right. Revelation chapter 21 this morning. We have two chapters left. So first I want to make a quick announcement. Well, two. Uh, Number one, every Sunday there is an opportunity at 9 a.m. to pray over this service and to pray for one another, things that are going on. And so we would love if you would join us for that. And number two, uh, from August 2nd through August 15th, if you purchase anything at Rural King and you get a receipt for that, you can actually go online to ruralking.com forward slash church week and you can can, uh, take those receipts and fill them out and get them in there and then uh, 10% of the proceeds goes to us as a church. And so it's a way that they're trying to lead in giving back as a organization with Christian leaders. And um, also, um, if you use Amazon, I know none of you order anything on Amazon. None of you are Amazon junkies like I am. But if you are, you can go to smile.amazon.com. And they actually have a little program where part of your purchase can actually go to us as a church, as a nonprofit. So just opportunities and different ways to give and ways that you're already using. So I just figured if you wanted to use those, you could and I'd make them available. That being said, turn to Revelation in chapter 21 this morning. Revelation chapter 21, and this is going to be part two. So in chapter 21, we have this vision of heaven. And uh, so I have there for you the title of the message is, What's Heaven Like? And I think that it's important that we know what heaven is like, just so we can know who the God of, what the God of heaven is like. And so um, as we turn in Revelation chapter 21, I'm going to review real quickly what we went over last week. Number one, in heaven, everything we've ever known is made completely new. 
And we looked at that word last week that's in Isaiah chapter 65, verse 17, where he actually says, Behold, I make all things new. I'm going to make a new heavens and a new earth. The word there for create or make is not to make something out of something that exists, but instead to, to start from nothing and make something like God did when he made the universe and the heavens and the earth and us. And so um, everything that we've ever known is made new. It's created new without the corruption of sin. Also, um, out of this new heavens and this new earth is going to come a heavenly city called New Jerusalem. Now, this will be truly the holy Jerusalem. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, right now it's just a city like any other city. There's nothing special about it other than several world religions call it their home. Um, but in spite of that, it's still an ungodly place. Most of the people that live in Jerusalem are secular. They're not religious. And so um, New Jerusalem will be there. What's interesting is that the New Jerusalem will descend out of heaven down to earth, unlike what we tried to do at the Tower of Babel in Genesis, where we built a tower unto the heavens and up to heaven, God himself will bring heaven down to us. And that seems to be his MO. Jesus himself came down to us, and this Jerusalem, this new Jerusalem, this heavenly city of God will also, just like Jesus, will come down to us. Also, new Jerusalem is holy because God's presence dwells there. That's what makes it holy. Who is there is what makes it holy. So in God's presence, through Jesus Christ, is heaven. Notice what I'm not saying. I'm not saying God's presence through Jesus Christ in heaven. I'm saying God's presence through Jesus Christ, when we're in his presence, that's what heaven is. Heaven is full of comfort, joy, satisfaction, contentment, um, we will not long for anything else. Read Psalm 23 and all of the promises that God makes when he's our shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. I shouldn't want anything. He leads me beside cool streams. He leads me to green pastures. And then the part that won't be there anymore is even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil. That's what we have for here. But then in heaven, we won't walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We will walk in eternal life. There will no longer be any fear, no worries, no anxiety, no what ifs, no who's going to get elected. No, it's all going down like hell in the handbasket. No more, I forgot my mask in my car. Whatever it is, it won't be there. We will not need to protect ourselves. God is our protector there. And I would submit to you that God is our protector here. His spirit is dwelling in us and reminding us daily that we are his. And so all of that to say, that's what heaven's like, generally. But apart from that, on the flip side, God's presence, apart from Jesus Christ, outside of his loving care, without his shed blood applied to our lives, that's what hell is. Hell is the opposite of heaven in many ways. Sorrow, pain, loneliness, weeping, 
no comfort, no joy, discontentment, which is torture forever. Now, everything that Jesus experienced on the cross, that's what hell looks like. Wrongfully accused, except we'll be righteously accused. Uh, loneliness. Uh, Father, why have you forsaken me? Jesus said that on the cross. That's what you'll experience if you go to hell because of your non-belief in Jesus, rejecting his love. And, and God's going to sift through these two groups. And that's seen in Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13 and verse 36 says this. <clears throat> Jesus sent the multitude that he was teaching away and he went into a house and his disciples and came to him and said, uh, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he answered and said to them, he who sows the good seed is the son of man. And the field is the world and the good seeds are the sons of the kingdom. But the tares are the sons of the wicked one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered, they will be burned in the fire. So it will be at the end of this age. And if you remember where we at are at in Revelation, the tares have been gathered. Those who have rebelled against Jesus have been gathered. They've been judged. Satan himself has been cast into the lake of burning sulfur and fire. And the Son of Man, verse 41 says, the Son of Man will send out his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of the fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth and the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So this, this juxtaposition, this two sides of the coin, basically those who are tares, by the way, if you've ever sown a field full of wheat seed, up in it comes wheat, and then the tares come up as well if there's weeds. And every one of us that's planted anything has seen weeds because we've got to pull them. But tares grow up and they look like wheat, but all they do is they rob nutrients from the soil, from the things that will actually produce wheat, and then they also choke out the actual wheat. But in the parable, when he was teaching these multitudes, the, the people would come to them and say, you know, in the, in the parable, there would be a man or some of the farmers that would work with him, and they'd say, hey, do you want us to tear out the tares, take out the weeds right now so that you won't have all these tares in the field? And the farmer said, no. And you're like, well, that's weird. Why wouldn't he tear out the weeds? He said, because if you tear out the tares now, it will actually pull out some of the good crop as well. So leave the tares in there until the time of harvest, and then all of it will be harvested, and he'll separate the tares from the wheat. So God's already went through this sifting process in Revelation. He's removed the tares. He's gone through this millennial kingdom, this thousand-year reign, to show those whose hearts are towards him and those hearts who are rebellious against him and then those who are rebellious against him will be judged. And then the leader of them, Satan himself, and the fallen angels will be thrown into the fiery furnace, essentially. But what remains is the righteous. They will have endured the test. They will have endured everything that they've experienced. And so in verse 9 in Revelation 21, 
we go on to see that as John is receiving this vision, verse 9 says, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me, John, and talked with me, saying, Now, come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain. And he showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, which was already described in verse 1 through 8. Descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Also, she had a great and high wall with names written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, three gates on the west. Now the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. So we have this description of this new Jerusalem. And the angel, one of the angels that poured out the seven bowls on, on, of judgment, comes to John. So he's got great authority, and he says to John, come, I want to show you the bride of the Lamb. The, the place has been prepared. The marriage is going to be partaken in, but I want to show you the bride. And you're thinking, do, 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 do. It, the, the music is playing. John shows up, and he's looking for what would you look for if you were looking for a bride? A woman who's adorned, ready to be married. Does he see a woman? No. He sees a city. What the heck? What's going on? And so he says, come and see the bride. He expects a bride and is showed instead this big, huge city. But notice that this city is prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, according to verse 2 of the same chapter. How is the city adorned? What's the word adorned mean? Uh, dressed. You know, if a woman is adorned for her wedding, typically she's wearing a dress that costs, and it's also white, and of course it's unique in some sort of fashion that fits just her. This bride, this city, is adorned in God's glory. The very brilliance of God's glory. Think about this. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up to a mountain by themselves, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he starts to arise and be glorified, and it says that his clothes become whiter than any launderer could get them. I think that's significant because we think about a bride's dress. We think about white. We think about purity, preparation, everything that it took. And yet here, this city is adorned in the glory of God, just like Jesus was. Also adorned in light. It's adorned with walls. It has gates. And on the gates, there's names. Whose names? It says the 12 tribes of Israel which were the 12 sons of Jacob. And these are the 12 gates that are around this city. So in order to enter into the presence of God, which is in the middle of this city, you have to go through the gates of the testimony 
of the Israelites. But before I get there, I'm going to get ahead of myself. I want to show you something real quick. Look at this. Now, this is just a drawing. I get it. And it's just a rendering of what happens in Numbers chapter 2 and chapter 3. The children of Israel are delivered out of Egypt, and they come into the wilderness of the Sinai Peninsula. And God instructs them on the holy mountain. He gives them the Ten Commandments, but he also gives them the laws and how they're to conduct themselves as a nation. And about the, the uh, tabernacle, which you can see in the middle, where the Shekinah glory, that's what that cloud is supposed to symbolize, all the way down to a very small square in the middle of this group of, but it's people. It's like you're in the arch and you're looking down. You're seeing all the tiny ants. What you're seeing is you're seeing the tabernacle where God's presence was to be approached only by the high priest. And if you look on, on there's a little one there. I don't know if you can see it, but it's just towards closer to you from that little square in the middle. That's where Moses, Aaron, and his sons would be camped. And then number two, is uh, where the sons of Kohath, the Levites, and then number three, the Gershonites, and the Merarites, not the Ferrarites, uh, but the Merarites, and these are all the Levites that would be in charge of the implements of the temple. So as you go out further from the presence of God, we have three tribes on each side of the tabernacle, Dan, Asher, Naphtali, Benjamin, Manasseh, Ephraim, Gad, Simeon, Reuben, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. So what's my point? Look at this. On the screen I have for you, this is how God laid out for them to camp. Every time they stopped somewhere, they'd set up camp, you had a assigned seat as a tribe. And, and around that camp, there was three on the north, three on the south, three on the east, and three on the west. Do you think that's coincidence? I, I don't. I think the Bible is always trying to point us to heaven. It's always trying to point us to the presence of God. And Hebrews chapter 8 actually teaches that everything that was in the Old Testament was a type or a shadow of what God's presence would look like when we get there. So all that to say, back on my previous slide, we have the gates laid out perhaps like the tribes were. This is the city whose foundations and builder is God. This is the city that all the prophets that went before Jesus were looking for. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, the apostle Peter writes about this city. 1 Peter chapter 2, in verse 1. Well, <clears throat> Verse 4, he says, Coming to him, Jesus, as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion. This city is described as on holy Zion. A, he says, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, chosen and precious, 
and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he's precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. And so all that to say that God is building us up as a spiritual household. And he's started the building, the foundation of heaven, as Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. Who are the other foundational stones? Well, we've already seen this. The other foundational stones... <clears throat> oh, I didn't have that on the slide. I've already been read about here in Revelation chapter 21. It says, number one in verse 11, this city comes out of heaven, having the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone. Didn't we just read about a precious stone? Coming to him as to a precious stone. We're coming to him. His presence is in the middle of the camp. His presence will be in the middle of heaven. And as we come to him as a living stone, we come to him and we are stones. But the foundation and the gates, the gates are all the tribes of Israel. The foundation, it says its foundations are named after the apostles, the 12 apostles. What's interesting to me about that is that as we look at the 12 stones we see in Ephesians chapter 2 in verse 20, in verse 19, he says, Now therefore, you're no longer strangers and foreigners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, and you are members of the household of God. And this household, he says, has been built on the foundation of the apostles. You think that's a coincidence? That, that we've been built on the foundation of the apostles. And then he says in Revelation chapter 21 that the foundations of heaven have the names on them of the apostles. And so he goes on and he describes heaven and what it's made out of. What's heaven like? Well, he gives dimensions. He says in verse 15, He who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. Now, maybe you gals aren't like this, but men like to know dimensions. How many acres is it? You know, how tall is it? Are we going to need to put in another bathroom? You know, are we going to need to put, you know, do we have enough room to expand? Uh, but all that to say, he's going to measure it out with a golden reed. Why is he using a reed? It's a measuring stick. It's what they would use. If you read Ezekiel, he measures out the tabernacle. And he gives this vision to Ezekiel, and he has a reed that he measures it by. It's the standard. This one's a golden reed, so I would call it the golden standard. It's not the king's foot anymore. It's, it's the golden standard of this reed. And so this angel has this standard, and it's getting ready to measure it out. The city is laid out as a square, verse 16. Its length is as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. What the heck is a furlong? Does anybody know? Well, Google knew if it wasn't lying to me. Um, the city dimensions and furlongs is somewhere, anywhere from 1,380 miles to 1,500 miles. So its length, its width, and its height. 
Now that's interesting because this city, most cities don't have a length, width, and a height. They have a length and a width, and then the FCC says what you can use above it, right? Uh, some cities, by the way, like I went to Chicago one time, and I went on the architectural tour. And, and they sell you this ticket, and you get on this little river on a boat, and as you go around the city, the property is all owned, but there are certain buildings that are actually built above the railroad. The railroad takes up a huge area, and then there's these pillars, and the buildings are built on the ground below it, but they really only own the air above the railroad. So that's kind of interesting that we've done something like that, and yet Remember, this angel was told by John, let me take you to this most high place and I'll show you this city whose builder and maker is God. A little devotional thought. It says that John was taken in the spirit with this angel to show him this bride, this city. Do you remember? Who, by the way, who's the king of this city? Sunday school answer, Jesus. Okay, but Jesus himself was taken away by the Spirit after he was baptized, and he was tempted in the wilderness for 40 days, and he did not eat. One of those temptations was that he was taken up to a very high mountain. Sound familiar? And while he was there, Satan pointed out all the kingdoms of the earth, and he said, if you will bow down to me, I'm going to give you charge over those kingdoms. So Jesus said no, right? He said you shall have no other gods before you. Get behind me, Satan, is what he said to him. You're cursed. Now, I'm not going to be cursed with you. He rejected that temptation, but it was for the joy that was set before him. He knew that he would one day be a ruler over a city that wouldn't be tainted with sin. He knew that he would one day, who wants to be a king over nations that will fight and battle and war against each other, even from within, when I could be the ruler of a city that will never have war in its gates. I can be a ruler over a city where I will actually have power. He didn't need Satan to give him all the kingdoms of the earth. He just wanted one holy kingdom. And God the Father, because of Jesus' obedience, he will be exalted to the king of all kings the Lord of all lords. And we read last week that all the kingdoms of the earth will bring their glory into this city. And so all that to say, this city is founded and it has dimensions. It's a real place, folks. And I believe that when we get there, we're going to be broken a little bit. That's why he wipes away our tears, because we're going to realize that it was way more real than anything this world has to offer. Now, what's interesting about the length the width and the height is if you turn to Ephesians chapter 3, in verse 14, the Apostle Paul actually prayed for the churches in his day, and he prayed something that is important for us to pray for one another now. In Ephesians chapter 3, in verse 14, Paul says, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in your inner man that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love 
may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length and the depth and the height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That was his prayer, that we could comprehend something that's already true right now in eternity. That's also true for us right now in finite time. That God has love for us that has dimensions. So let me show you those dimensions in our world, okay? 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles. Like an like a ice cube, like a square one, not the weird-shaped ones you got in your fridge. This is a world uh, globe thing, and it's a picture from space. Yeah, that's a technical term. And if you look at where, about where Jerusalem is, if you were to take 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles over the city of Jerusalem, being the apple of that, the apple of the eye, the center of it, you see how big it is on the world. Now, that's not very big in comparison to the world, right? But let's look at it on something that makes a little more sense to us. Somebody took the time to make on a globe a scale model of the New Jerusalem. Look at that. Very technical. Somebody cut up and did a little Sunday school project. But it takes up most of the United States, a little bit of Mexico, and, and a little bit of the Gulf of Mexico. It's that's how big it is. Now, we might say that's not very big. Uh, we could thumb wrestle over that. I think it's a pretty big city. One city, one municipality, one throne. But we don't need room for all the other rulers of the world. There's one, and we all live amongst one another. I believe that there's height to it, and I know some of you guys are, aren't going to like this, but I believe that in some ways uh, we're not going to have alleys between our houses. I, I think it's all going to be one building. It's going to be the biggest skyscraper ever. Uh, for you non-city dwellers, you're going to hate it because you don't like neighbors. But it's going to be the best thing ever because your neighbors will agree with you on everything. Because Jesus is king, right? That means no other little kingdoms. And so there's no mow lawns to mow. That's pretty awesome. I think God's going to work out the whole thing for you outdoorsy types. you know. But I, all that to say, it's going to be the best thing ever. But it has dimensions to it. I, just, I was Googling this week and I found this. I was like, this is awesome. And so I want to be able to comprehend with all the saints. What is the width? What is the height? What is the depth of God's love for those who trust him? And so I want to point out this also. This is love that he has for us, and this is love for, that he has for those who have yet to trust him. There are many that we are still called to invite into this kingdom, and they don't have labels on their head that says, I haven't been invited. So if you're not sure if somebody's been invited, Send out the RSVPs, okay? You are the RSVPs. You are the invitations. Your lively, the way that you live amidst a pandemic and global panic and political issues, stop trying to win people over to your political side and start inviting them into the kingdom. It's a real place. And so, um, also, there's a wall. For some reason, there's walls around this city, um, even though there won't be any pain or sorrow or wars. Uh, apparently, walls used to be for protection, but there's walls in this city, and they have dimensions. They're 144 cubits. 
which means about 216 feet tall. Um, and then there's foundation stones. But the gates are described to be made out of pearl. That's where we get the idea of pearly gates, right? Um, but the gates are the place of entrance. And what we're going to find out in the, the rest of this passage when I finally get there, because my brain is all over the place, is that when you enter in these gates, there's going to be angels at the gates. It's not going to be Peter. From what I'm reading here, biblically speaking, now it's still funny in a joke. You know, Peter and so-and-so were talking at the pearly gates. I get it. Like, I'm sure he was a good joke teller. He's a fisherman. I mean, it, and they'll be sanctified fisherman jokes, okay? Um, but all that to say, the foundation stones are made out of uh, the apostles. The temple of God is built. It's tested, and here's what remains. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we see a little bit more about these foundational stones as Paul talks to the Corinthians. And his point is, not so much what the temple's made out of, but who the temple of the Holy Spirit is. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. In verse 9. We are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. And you are God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me, Paul, as a wise master builder, I've laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on the foundation, meaning the foundation of the apostles, how he uses the truth that God's revealed in his scripture. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid. It's already been laid. Which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work. Now, consider the building materials. He says gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw. Bible 101, what's going to stand? If it's tested by fire, wood, hay, and straw, not so great. This isn't the three pigs. You know, uh, even in the three pigs, the wolf blew that stuff over. But in the case of the kingdom, if we build with coal, gold, silver, and precious stones, that's what Peter describes as our faith. God's refining our faith. So God's not calling us to build based on our common sense or our worldly reasoning or our education. The kingdom of God is built by gold, silver, precious stones. I'm not talking about worldly riches. We're talking about faith. By faith, the kingdom of God is built. And if God's calling you to do something, I promise you it's going to go beyond your intellect. It's going to go beyond your finances. It's going to go beyond your reasoning ability. It's going to go to the point where you have to exercise faith to do what he's called you to do. And if it's not by faith, it's wood, hay, and straw. And so the kingdom of God, we see this in Revelation, is built by faith, and it's built with these components. So the other thing I want you to notice about these stones, and I want to make sure I've actually read all the verses. I think I stopped short. Verse 19, the foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. 
The first foundation was jasper. The second, sapphire. The third, I'm going to mess this one up, chalcedony. Anyway, the fourth, I went to Farmington. Give me a break. The fourth, emerald. The fifth, sardonyx. The sixth, sardius. The seventh, chrysolite. The eighth, beryl. The ninth, topaz. That's not a Ford topaz or a mercury topaz. Sorry, these are dad jokes. Come on, give me a break. The tenth, chrysoprase. The eleventh, jacinth. And the twelfth, amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each individual gate was of one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. So these same stones that he lists that are the foundational birthstones, if you will. They're the same stones that if you go on your own time and read Exodus chapter 28, it's the stones that were like a Mr. T necklace on the high priest. It would be 12 stones there, and they're the same exact stones. So the apostles represented us before Jesus. The stones that represented the 12 tribes of Israel on the high priest's shoulders. He would bear the sins of the, the, the nation before God, and God would deal with the sins because of the high priest, but then he would represent God's word to the people of God. And so there's this, this high priest, we have Jesus, and yet this building that's got all the same stones on it, and the names of the 12 tribes, what I'm saying is, is that God is going to dwell among us, Emmanuel, God with us, just like he did the children of Israel in the tabernacle, just like he did in the temple for the high priest, just like he will in this new meeting place where all of those of us who have trusted God, not by sight, but by faith in this world, because of what Jesus has done in heaven, we get to be in the very presence of God ourselves. We don't need a mediator. We don't need a high priest. We don't need somebody to go before us. It'll just be us walking into the presence of God through these gates on this foundation. And yet we're not just in the building. We are the building. Does that make sense? It's so confusing to me because there's so many facets to this idea. But that being said, What's in the temple? Verse 22. I saw no temple in it. So he's telling us all the things that he's seen. I seen New Jerusalem. I seen what the New Jerusalem's made out of. I see the stones. I see the gates. I see the walls. I see the dimensions. And yet what he says after that is, I saw no temple. Everything made sense to John except there was no temple. Why not? Because we no longer need a wall of separation. Us being in the presence of God apart from what Jesus did, his wrath will lash out and we will die in his presence. But in the presence of a holy God, when we are made holy by Jesus, no longer do you need a tabernacle. He dwells among us and we get to be with him. We're his people. He's our God. But I saw no temple in it, verse 22, for the God for God, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory that of God illuminates it. The Lamb is its light, and the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. No temple, because we're going to be there with them. No need for a wall of separation. 
No sun or moon. God's glory illuminates it. He is the light of the world. John chapter 8, verse 12. Matthew chapter 5, verse 14 through 16. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. As you walk in the light, as he is in the light, the blood of Jesus cleanses us of all unrighteousness, making us pure in his sight. So what we do, and I'm going to read this real quick because I think it's important. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. Jesus says to his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you are the light of the world. A city, excuse me, a city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Think about that in context to this new Jerusalem that's on a high hill, Mount Zion. And it's very large. A city that's set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. In the temple was a lampstand. And this, there was one lampstand in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest would go. There was a lampstand, and it's described in Zechariah. But this lampstand would stand there and all of the walls inside the Holy of Holies were gold. And they were polished gold. If you've ever seen polished pure gold, it becomes like the surface of a mirror. This one light inside this holy place would illuminate this entire large room where you would meet with God. And the reflection, it would be like being in a house of mirrors. But my point is, is that in heaven, the glory of God that we have brought to him, that they would glorify our God who is in heaven, somehow, and I'm still working on this thought, what we do in this life now adds to God's glory in eternity. I'm not saying that God is glorified because of us, but in some ways I'm saying God is glorified because of us. What you do in this life matters. It affects people. But what you do in this life brings glory and honor and praise to God himself, which he deserves, by the way. We get to add to the light that illuminates eternity. Do you know that? That's heavy and it's exciting all at the same time. So all that to say that we are those who bring glory that illuminates heaven, just like that candle stand in the Holy of Holies. Do you know what lit that candle stand? Not paraffin, not wax, but olive oil. Olive oil was continually feeding through that. And that olive oil is a picture in the Old Testament of the Holy Spirit. What did God leave us to empower us to live this life that glorifies him. He left us the Holy Spirit. So we glorify God in that we let his spirit empower us and light us up and use us in this life. Every work that we do, it's not based on our own strength. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. And we have the opportunity every day, every moment to say, Lord, 
Fill me with your Holy Spirit so that I can illuminate this life and illuminate eternity with your glory. And all that light reflects. So what does this look like from the outside? Is It's seen in Revelation 4. We read this several months ago now. But in Revelation chapter 4, what we're seeing is a more zoomed-in version of what he's describing today. Revelation 4, verse 1. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here. I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was, here he is, in the spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven. One sat on the throne. He who sat there was like a jasper, a sardius stone in appearance. And there was rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones. On the thrones I saw 24 elders clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold in their heads, excuse me, on their heads. But so we saw heaven. We saw God's presence in the middle. We see these 24 elders, and it seems the more we get focused on heaven, the more that we see that heaven itself isn't just a throne room. But now we've zoomed out and we see that it's a city. And we see that in that city, there's people. And we see on the stones of the city, the walls, that it's made of people. And these people aren't just people, but they're precious stones that have been tested and have endured these tests and have been refined. And the light that shines forth doesn't just shine forth inside of this temple, but it actually illuminates out from the temple and lights up the whole world. And so, I don't know, it just gets me fired up apparently. But in verse 25, he goes on to say this. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no light there. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. But there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie. Only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life shall enter. So there's no gates because there's no need for protection. All that can come in, the only ones allowed in, will be those that are in the Lamb's book of life. That's where we get that idea of St. Peter with the book open going, ah, you can come in like you're a VIP, like you're going to the club, you know. But there were gates for protection in ancient cities, but there will be none needed here. Only one gate, think about this, in, John, in Revelation 4, there was only one gate John was brought through to see all the things we read about from chapter 4 all the way to chapter 21 so far. One gate. What is that gate? Well, it's Jesus. Jesus is the gate. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 16, and we are going to close. Matthew 16, verse 15. That is not the reference I wanted. <laughs> John chapter 10. Rewind. You guys ever watch Saved by the Bell? Wait a minute. Let me pause this thing. Showing my age when I mentioned Saved by the Bell. Some of you are like, what the heck? Stinking kids and their TV shows. John chapter 10, verse 1. Jesus says, most assuredly, I say to you, 
He who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. He who brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus used this illustration, but they didn't get it. So verse 7, Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly, I say to you, I'm the door of the sheep. All whoever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. The idea is this picture right here. Not this one, but this one. Not that one, but this one. Do you see that picture on the lower left? Jesus said, I'm the door, I'm the gate. And how they would have a sheep pen set up is they would have these walls. If you drive up on tip top, you see these walls and they're all made out of stones, kind of like this one. And they have like metal, uh, I'm not gonna describe it anymore because I'll confuse people, but basically there's gates around that the sheep would stay within. But there's not like a gate, like you go by at Rural King or Family Center or Tractor Supply. But the gate would be a frame and the shepherd would sit there. The only people that could get in and out would be the ones that the shepherd let in and out. The only animals that could get in and out would be the ones that would have to go through the one gate. He would protect it, and he would vet it, if you will. And so what's interesting is that the only ones that could get in, the wolves at night, they would have to climb over the wall. Did you notice that heaven has a wall that's 216 feet tall? Climb that baby, if you will, right? <laughs> but Jesus is that for us. He's our strong and mighty tower. And at the same time, he's the gate. And on the foundation, he's the wall. He's the cornerstone. And at the same time, he is the precious stone that illuminates the whole thing. And at the same time, the city's not Jesus, but it's the bride. Behold, think about the thing that's said at marriage, two become one. He says, come and see the bride. And then he shows us the bride, and yet he's intrinsically a piece of the bride. And so the two are united together and made one city where God's presence dwells. And so I kind of ruined the, this, this slide here, but Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. Jesus Christ is the light of the world, something that's not yet fulfilled, yet will be, and yet it has been fulfilled. Uh, I am the door, Jesus said. He is the door. He's the gate. He's the only way to enter into salvation. There is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. Apart from Jesus Christ, there is no entrance into this city we describe today, and it is a real place. Jesus said, I am the resurrection. I am the life. And then he said, the one who believes in me will live even if he dies. So we have nothing to be afraid of. Our future is secure. Our salvation is sure. Uh, the light will be, everything's been prepared. Jesus said, I go 
to prepare a place for you. We just looked at it today. And so I want to finish by reading this one passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9 through 10. Eye has not seen, nor has ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. And so God wants us to be able to comprehend these things with all the saints. What is the width and the depth and the height and the dimensions of Christ's love for us? If you struggle with comprehending it, pray the same thing that the man prayed when he wanted his son healed of being demonically possessed. He said to Jesus, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And the circumstances you find yourself in today and this week and in the coming months, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. So Lord Jesus, indeed what this passage says is true. I hasn't seen. The only reason John saw it is because you took him away in the spirit to see, uh, but until we see it face to face, until we see you, until we see the city of God, until we're fashioned perfectly off-site and brought to the temple site and slid in among the other stones, the living stones, we won't know what this is going to look like. Is it a building? Is it a bride? Is it a place? Is it a space? Is this on earth on the top of a mountain or is it rotating like many believe as the moon does? It's the size of the moon. And so, Lord, thank you for this place that you're preparing for us and has already been prepared. And thank you for giving us entrance into this city. Would you help us in the midst of the life that we live in right now to get our eyes firmly fixed upon this destination so that we can store up treasure there, so that we can live as if that city is what matters more than any city we can live in here. Lord, prepare our hearts, prepare our eyes, prepare our minds. Lord, help us to cast off anything that would hinder us from obtaining the prize to be in your presence. So Lord, we love you and we ask you for faith to build on this foundation that's already been provided for us. In Jesus' name, amen.